This week, I'm in conversation with queer Black theologian and Anglican priest, Father Jarrell Robinson-Brown, whose theology and pastoral practice offer a re-embodied and more relational understanding of Christianity. Jarrell charges the church and its leadership with a famine of grace, pointing to the exclusion of queer Black bodies from the bounds of God's love as a violent deviation from the inclusive ministry of Jesus. Jarrell is one of many theologians, poets, and philosophers whose work has offered me an affirming and vitalizing framework for understanding and practicing my evolving spirituality. You'll have heard me talk about author Sophie Strand, biological philosopher Andreas Weber, and poet and theologian Padre Gotuma, who joins me today for a conversation about his new book of poetry, Feed the Beast, which features poems wrestling with sexuality and religion. And today, Padre and I discuss the body as a site of divine and erotic intelligence, the potential of poetry to help us approach and unlock our desires, and Padraig reads four of his poems, Monster, Exorcism, Someone, and How to Be Alone. I'm Josh Rivers, and I'm busy being black with Padraig Otumo. Greg, thank you so much. Hi, Josh. For... <laughs> I'm so, if listeners can't see me, but I'm, I'm absolutely beaming. Um, I'm really delighted to have you on the show. And I just want to say thank you, not only for the beautiful work that you put out into the world, but also for the support you've shown me and Busy Being Black and, and the friendship you've, you've offered in my life as well. So thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. And it's been reciprocal, Josh. You've shown such support for me. It's always been a joy to be connected with you. I read and feel a rage I recognize in Feed the Beast. And I want to say thank you for that because, mm -hmm. you know, I've had conversations on the show about this reconciliation between sexuality and faith. And it seems to me to be something that a lot of us are concerned with. And it might not be our primary concern, but it is something that we pursue, right? That we try yeah. to figure because that, well, I think it's for many reasons, right? It's not only that we have a relationship yeah. to like a historical relationship, a familiar relationship to the church, however that shows up in our lives, but that there's also this call within us to be reconciled with or reconnected to or reunited with some sort of spirituality, right? That we feel yeah. we've been denied. And so I think yeah. for anyone who's questioning whether or not a reconciliation could happen should absolutely read Feed the Beast <laughs> and indeed explore all of your work. I think that's why I'm so drawn to you because I don't see, much like Rumi didn't, I don't see this separation between who you are or who you're trying to be in the world and what you believe. Well, that's kind of you to say, Josh. Um, I think for me, uh, the, the exploration to try to figure out what it means to be alive and what it means for me to be a gay man has always been intrinsically tied up with the question of belief and not just belief in what can be a formal sense of belief in God or belief in religion, 
but belief in a broader sense. Who do I believe? Do I believe me? Do I believe the people who speak about me? And what is the quality of that belief? And what are the fruits of that belief or the destructions of that belief? And for me, reconciling myself to that is not about coming to peace. <laughs> it's not about finding any nice shape to go, okay, great. I don't believe in God. I do believe in God. I'm, I'm utterly uninterested in the question of belief in God, really. What I'm really interested in is what happens in our public conversations about that. When I hear of people who, who murder queer people, I, I wonder what have they been told to believe um, by somebody who would say, oh God, that murder's got nothing to do with me. <laughs> and for me, therefore, the question of belief is, is public and political. It isn't about the question as to what an individual does or doesn't believe. When I hear of somebody who does violence to themselves because of some secret about themselves that they can't share, I wonder what has the um, barbed wire of belief been to your imagination and what has it said to you you can't be. And belief in this context is therefore an issue of public theology with nothing to do with an individual spiritual practice and everything to do with how is it in public we speak about moral narratives as if those people who have defined what moral is are the ones who practice what moral is. Mm. And how do we understand the public politic of morality, of sensuality, of body, of freedom, of rage, of protest? That's reconciliation. That's what I'm interested in. I love that, <laughs> that, that complicating of reconciliation. It feels more human. It feels more accessible. Yeah. Right? Because I think you've, you've made me realize just in this moment that I have been thinking of reconciliation as it's okay for you to believe here. And that's not actually what I'm trying to get at. I'm trying to get at that question. What, what do you believe? Who do you believe? I, I mean, I have been so often, I've been the token gay in a room of people who want to figure out how can we talk about gay people being cured, but do it in a way that's not homophobic. I have so regularly been the consultant in those situations. And uh, these days, I mean, I wouldn't do it anymore, I don't think. But even when I was doing it, I would say to people at the start to go, um, you realize the impossibility of what you're asking, you know, and to say, I'll journey with you for six weeks or six months or however it is we do it. You need to pay me. But I'll do that with you in a way where I won't pretend. But what that there is a way to say, oh, you know, um, being LGBTQ is um, not God's best, but we're not going to be homophobic. We're going to find a nice way to say it, to say, I, I will not help you in this. I will help you if you listen. And regularly, I would be giving people feedback to say, I am here in front of you and I'm not frightened by you and I'm telling you the truth. And what's interesting to me is what system of belief do you have operational in your mind that you're not believing me? Because this is a question about the orientation to truth, which I think is what religious people claim is at the heart of religion. And here's the truth in front of you. One time saying that to a group, they said, could we get some young people inside here who've recently come out of reparative therapy just to hear their experience? And I said, no, like why? 
I'm at that stage, how old was I? Maybe 41, 42. I said, why would hearing this from a recently traumatized 19-year-old help? Is it because, you know, you could entertain them? You could, you could be less of a bastard than the one who put them through reparative therapy. They might say to you, oh, you're a bit nicer. None of that is of, has any integrity to it. I'm telling you what is true. Why is it that you have a system in place that means you are not believing? And again, that is reconciliation. I am integrated in myself and I am not frightened in those situations. And it's taken a, a long time to get there. <laughs> and part of the reason why I'm not frightened is I also know I don't have to be there. I choose in situations where people say, will you be the token gay here? And I go, will I? Do I want to? Um, uh, and so I have freedom to say yes or no in that situation. And the times that I've said yes, I've chosen to say yes. And therefore, I am holding with tension and integration and reconciliation myself that is, um, that is freedom giving, even in the context of being in a conversation of oppression. One of the poems that has really lit me up in Feed the Beast is Monster. Will you read it for us? Yeah, for sure. This poem has a little etymological piece of um, an epigraph at the start. The word from um, the book of Leviticus, um, abomination, of course, has a long history in terms of being used as oppression. The, the word abomination in, in Hebrew is um, toeva, and it says in the book of Leviticus that a man shall not lie with a man as a man lies with a woman. It is an abomination. And in Irish, the word for abomination is aduafracht, and adua is an old word meaning monster. Oh, it can mean monster, it means other things too. So here's a poem in the persona of monster. I twisted prayers and shat on grace. I shunned the bread and wine and laced the Eucharist with wrath. I farted as I genuflected, expelling what my gut rejected. I lifted up my eyes. Will any recognize my perfidy or listen to this air, my crooked samedy? I licked the clay-made feet of saints, scratched my name on their pale faces with my sharpened nails. I broke the rails. I prowled around the altar, opened up the holy box and spat into the golden space it offered. God didn't care. I hear he says he's glad when devils turn to accusation. I wonder if he'd wondered where I'd been. So see me now, you fucker. Here's my chance to lift the lid and all your people said and did. You made me, so I stare you down. You changed me, so I charge you now. I have been ashamed. I bear witness now. I moon the crucifixion, dropping knickers round my combat boots. My tutu and my vest are bulletproof. I know that people stare. I rip my nipples from my hairy chest, a milkless offering. I tune my radio to noise and turn the volume loud. I try to drown out all the voices from the lips I didn't kiss, the horns I didn't break, the hides I didn't take for want of purity. I take a piss to bless the ground. I open all the doors. I growl God down. Ah, <laughs> so fantastic. <laughs> That's the first time I've ever been asked to read that poem. Oh, well, I, I feel very lucky. 
<laughs> Why were you struck by that one? I'm curious. I'm drawn to the, this idea that we can desecrate something holy to that question about what do you believe and who do you believe? Mm-hmm. Um, that space is only holy if I say it's holy, if I believe yeah. it's holy. And it feels like retribution, yeah. right? Because I'm thinking of the ways <laughs> to be specific to my own lived experience that a Black man's anger is policed, that there are apparently appropriate ways and times and things about which to be angry. The Bible is full of moments when rage was justified because it came from on high. So violence populates, animates the Bible, and yet we apparently don't have our own recourse to this same holy, divine violence or anger at the very least. And so when I read Monster, I think of that. I think of all of us Hmm. who have wanted, who have actually prowled around the altars, who have actually growled to God on our knees. Yeah. And so, yeah, Monster resonates for me in that way. Hmm. What's interesting to me about Monster is that he, he believes in God. He believes in God enough to bring his whole body there everything about his body to maim himself in the name of that argument that this is a a devotion which demands everything and a devotion that says this isn't holy this is and says all of the accoutrement that have been put around the structure the the violence the oppression they're not holy at all tear those down um and in the context of that say there is something holy that monster, he really believes in the holy here. I think of Lucille Clifton's poem, Being Property Once Myself, in the context when people say, well, no property, you know, be angry, but don't destroy property. And she's like, well, being property once myself. Mm-hmm. She is therefore desecrating the idea of property as this idea to say, well, don't touch that. And she's saying, let me bring that down. And there's an intimacy to your poetry and to the way you speak, right? There's a tenderness, a softness that I'm so drawn to. You know, listeners will know already, you know, um, and um, those who've heard the episode 100 will have heard your voice um, in that episode. I heard you say, you're the place I stand Mm. on the days when my feet are sore. Mm. And when I heard you say that, something within me something tender, something soft within me responded, yeah. swayed. And I thought, I want to be <laughs> the soft place people land, mm. right? And so your, your softness has, has kind of coaxed out my own. Mm. And so I also, in Feed the Beast, love the encounter of softness and intimacy alongside this, the monstrous and the rage. <laughs> yes, I, I did feel a bit self-conscious about that, but these poems were... These poems were um, called forth through a necessary engagement with rage over years. And so um, it was enjoyable to be, to learn what it meant to be unapologetic about that. That took time too. <laughs> well, and so what is it about your life now that empowers you to feel Feed the Beast is necessary and possible? Hmm. Why offer it now? I suppose partly for me, because I trained as a theologian and as a conflict mediator, but so much of my work came in um, 
as a freelancer from formerly working for religious structures, I suppose I needed to make myself in a situation where I was um, free from being employed by people who would who would wish to threaten you or punish you by exposing some of this. So there's a poem in the book that is a, an erasure poem from a statement that the Vatican um, released in 2021. And like that certainly would would interfere in in a contract where I'd have a contract with a Catholic university, for instance. <laughs> um, and so there is there's a structural level of freedom that has been that has been necessary for me to move away from that, as well as an intellectual. I suppose there's personal work too over years in terms of coming to an enjoyment of the the vivacity and electricity of rage and seeing that as absolutely present in the chaos from which art is born. Yeah. I'm drawn to art that hurts. That <laughs> that gets me. I always feel like such a masochist when I say stuff like this, but I do need to be stirred, um, prodded, because I feel like poetry, and in particular your poetry, unlocks doors that I, I'm not necessarily sure I can open on my own. Um, you know, the the idea your mint licorice and sea salt poem, I thought said. <laughs> delightful right? like mm -hmm. and it opened up joy for me right it opened up that mm -hmm. it i was able to access something else for me the body is an important site of intelligence and not just the body is a biological fact but uh, because the body changes of course and the body lies also but the body has sense sensory and sensual experience and the body is the home of rage, and the body is the home of flourishing, and the body is the home of love, and the body is the home of experimentation and risk and courage. All of these, all of these experiences are embodied experiences. And I suppose if if this if I believe in anything, I believe in it, I believe in death and death is an embodied experience also. And the question for me is, what does life mean in advance of that? I've been reading about death as a process, as a continual process, right? We understand death culturally, i.e. in Western cultures, as being final, right? The end, the life is over. And that we've been necessarily divorced from the kind of um, our role within the ecological. I'm reading Andreas Weber's The Biology of Wonder at the mm. moment. One of the end of the poems, um, I think, make believe there's a note, mm. and this isn't from Feed the Beast, but there's a note about um, us being part of humus, the stuff that stars are made of. Yes, there is, there's something about the, the materiality of existence as we experience it. <laughs> I mean, we, we don't experience what it's like to be quantum. We do experience what it's like to be um material and that within the context of materiality so much else is yearned for um finite infinitude is what emily dickinson calls it you know to be finite and yet to have these these suspicions these unconscious experiences of something that stretches beyond finitude into infinitude um that, that's a fundamental tension and the fact that we know it will end is a constant reminder to me of the of the something that's fundamental to the experience of being human
in conflict mediation, so much of, of what I think is going on is an obsession with with death. When I see people who are escalating and escalating and escalating a conflict, I say this as like a, a white man. When I see white supremacy, um, I th I think what is what what is the imagination about what will not die that's being put forward in that practice of white supremacy? I think what's needed is a really important imagination about what needs to die and what should have died and what what deaths are being caused in the name of this forcing forward of a of a terrible imagination of something that does not know how to die and shouldn't have been alive in the first place what's so important to me is that so so often there needs to be a recognition of can we be loyal to a life? And I'm speaking particularly here as a, as a white Irishman. Can we be loyal to a life where that loyalty is displaced and the imagination of that life was always displaced too when it comes to thinking about power? And I, I'm curious about what the resistance to following something that's fruitful, <laughs> what is that resistance? What, what is the change that you're resisting? Um, that that's one of the questions for me, I think, when it comes to the public imagination about what it means to be white and Irish in the world. Will you read another poem for us? Yeah. Um, when I was younger, I was put through some um, reparative therapies and exorcisms. And um, after about 20 years, I began to think that I had had enough space since those to begin to approach them through the lens of poetry. And initially I thought, my God, like I, you'd write a lot of poems about this. So I was looking for a form. And so I looked for, um, I wrote a sequence called Seven Deadly Sonnets. So I'll read you the first one. There's an epigraph to all these sonnets uh, from the Irish poet Patrick Cavanagh. And some deep prayers were shaped like sonnets. And here's the first of the exorcism poems. The exorcist in this context was from the United States, hence the reference to um, the US at the start of this poem. The Exorcism. I wished you weren't American. I wished you didn't see intrinsic evil in me. I wish you hadn't dragged my secret from me. Now I know you knew already. Someone squealed. I wished you didn't put your hands on me while you were screaming at the devils in me, all my homosexualities. I wished you'd never gathered people around, instructing them to pray in tongues or read from revelations or chant, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I wished you'd shut up. I repeated, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I wished he'd answered. I wished you'd dead and i was frightened at the violence in me and the nest of demons in me i wondered where they lived in my semen in the dreams i had of being kissed why did they breed in me my god my exorcist i'm telling you listeners go get feed the beast <laughs> <laughs> It made me think of this erotic self that is so um, taboo in so many mainstream religions, right? Mm. Um, and how poetry, your poetry, 
offers us a way back to encountering an erotic within us um, as divine. How do you define the erotic or, or how do you define the utility and the function and the importance of the erotic? Um, I'm glad you're asking me this now because I've been thinking a lot about this in the last year or two. Um, I first of all think of the erotic in terms of its relationship to power. And I think of the erotic as something where role and reciprocality are in fruitful and energetic and dynamic and delicious conversation. And when I think, therefore, of a queer erotic, it isn't just about what is um, penetrative and culminatory and um, getting to the end, getting to orgasm. I think of something that has a relationship with time and has a relationship with exchange that is filled with delight and surprise. And that is political as well as interpersonal between people who are in an erotic exchange, as well as therefore what it means to be in an argument and suddenly go, my God, you're right, that there is a, an erotic charge to the capacity to suddenly allow role and reciprocality and change and to allow the resistance in you to be turned into the very electricity that gives you the opportunity to go, wow, I have just been converted to this way of thinking or to this new idea or to this great imagination of something. So that's where I see the erotic. And it was the, um, it was the absolute denial of the erotic capacity of gay sex that I heard throughout my teens and then particularly in my late teens and early 20s where I heard people in religious contexts say there's no love in gay love there's you know it's just all lust as if lust is bad and it's just all this and it's just all that and so so much about what they were doing was holding up some some paper castle that was going to fall because if they said no there's a bit of love well then you go well, where's that bit of love <laughs> how do you know you know you're asking for evidence then and then of course the whole thing falls apart that has changed me to begin to take uh, the erotic seriously and to think about what that means in terms of the exchange between people as well as then the way that i imagine and try to practice power in in work in how I vote, in 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 how I imagine um, rage and energy and change and delight and dismay and embodiedness and how I imagine all of those things to be their full selves, their full selves publicly, their full selves politically and their full selves privately. I'm understanding erotic increasingly as a hunger for more life. Mm. <laughs> right? It's a nice way to say it. I think of so many of the world's religions that do have an understanding of the erotic in the way that they perceive God or the Godhead or the divinity or the community of gods, you know, that there is space for the erotic in that. In some fairly mystical traditions of Christianity, you do have some elements of that. And certainly you have that anomaly in the Hebrew Bible, the book Song of Songs, which isn't trying to depict anything other than um, an erotic encounter that goes on for chapters and chapters between two people. One woman, one man, extraordinary text filled with codes about 
all kinds of bodily fluids. A friend of mine, when he was in a conservative Bible college, they split up the class into those who were married and those who weren't, because the understanding was is that those who weren't married would be led astray by realizing how codified to all kinds of sexual positions the book Song of Songs is. Um, <laughs> so, of course, then all the unmarried people went and consulted with the married people to figure out what did you learn in your class? <laughs> what did you learn in your class? I, I, but what that tells me is how how extraordinary some of the texts are in these traditions that have then been used for dominance and suppression. And how one of the revolutions, people can choose where they wish to position themselves on this, but one of the revolutions is to realize that the traditions that we say have always been conservative, haven't always been conservative, that actually they were risky, they were extraordinary, they were undoing themselves, they were deconstructing themselves as they went along. And the codification of those into systems has been the thing that has defeated us and shown the lack of imagination in the interpretive function as centuries have gone on and power has become more embroiled. That the original texts often are far more anarchic than their interpreters would allow anybody to realize or to recognize. Yes. <laughs> 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 There's a very short poem in this in this Feed the Beast book, which, um, I mean, it's only a few words long. It's called Someone, and I think of this as the opposite of the erotic. Someone. Someone gets up after sex and doesn't cough up shame like phlegm. Someone. Someone else. And for me, there is, there is the tension of the erotic invitation present in that. But this someone that's being described um, can't even imagine what it would be like to imagine that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a foreign country. It's a distant planet. And the question for me is, who is satisfied by that performance of that piece of theatre? And that piece of theatre has been operationalized over and over again in so many people's lives and is continuing to be today. The question for me is who was entertained by that theater and who makes money from it and who is satisfied by the performance of that? And there is a question therefore for me about the, the politic and revolution and to bring it back to earlier on the rage of the erotic, which is about countering that voice and that experience of enforced shame and um, thinking about what it might mean to to set the imagination free. The erotic as a as part and parcel or as a constitutive part of freedom, the recognition of the erotic in these texts, in these religious texts, these anarchic texts being erotic in and of themselves and that being occluded from the public theological or public spiritual imagination is on purpose, right? Because to be to be fully feeling in the erotic is to be connected to the divine, is to be connected to the anarchic, is to be connected beyond arbitrary borders and identities. Yeah. I'm thinking of the flesh. Hmm. <laughs> I gave a talk at a retreat center once and a nun who I'd say was in her early 70s came up um, because I'd done a lot of study on the Gospels, and so I was giving a talk on reading the Gospels as literature. So this nun came up to me and stood in front of me quite close, and she had one hand on her chest, and she put another hand on mine. 
And she said, what I can't figure out is, how is it that a man of your age can make a woman of my age feel like this? And I was like, oh, I was a bit shocked, you know. That's not what I thought she was going to say. And um, and her hand, one her hand was on her own chest and the other hand on mine. All the while she said this. And I said, ah, sister, you can't talk to me like that. And she looked at me and she went, oh, I can. And I went from a certain performance of shock of, oh, nuns can't talk about their sex lives with younger men or et cetera, et cetera. And there was something slightly awkward about it. And all of that faded away from me. And I suddenly thought, I have something to learn from you about your relationship with the erotic and your relationship with the erotic in your body and how it is that you are linking our bodies together as you speak like this, how you're not afraid and I am. And, and why your initial response of her to her openness was to close. Yeah. Close her down and yeah. to close me down. Yeah. There is a poem in Feed the Beast that I would really love to close on. Um, mm -hmm. I've read it maybe six times and it's really resonating with me. It's How to Be Alone. I'd be delighted to read it. Why do you like this one? So to be literal to the title, <laughs> I'm learning how to be alone and I'm learning from other people, how to be alone with other people in the room as well, right? And that aloneness and loneliness are not the same thing. That aloneness is, uh, is a state is, is something that your self-confidence and your self-belief and your self-love makes possible. Um, and that there are things you discover about yourself and your aloneness and that we need a better language around loneliness and aloneness so that people know the difference. Um, because there are moments when I absolutely feel lonely and when in response to feeling lonely, I have a bottle of wine or go do something reckless. Um, and then there's moments when I'm in my aloneness and I feel so content, so at peace. I don't want for anything. And so the title alone um, invokes those feelings for me. This it's, it reflects the journey I'm on myself. Um, but it's honest as well. And it's hopeful. And I do like to, I do like hopeful. You know, as, much as, <laughs> as much as I am a nihilist, I do, I do have hope. How to be alone. It all begins with knowing nothing lasts forever. So you might as well start packing now. In the meantime, practice being alive. There will be a party where you'll feel like nobody's paying you attention. And there will be a party where attention's all you'll get. What you need to do is to remember to talk to yourself between these parties. And again, there will be a day, a decade where you won't fit in with your body, even though you're in the only body you're in. You need to control your habit of forgetting to breathe. Remember when you were younger and you practiced kissing on your arm? You were onto something then. Sometimes harm knows its own healing. Comfort knows its own intelligence. Kindness, too. It needs no reason. There is a you telling you another story of you. Listen to her. Where do you feel anxiety in your body? The chest? 
the fist, the dream before waking, the head that feels like it's at the top of the swing or the clutch of gut, like falling and falling and falling and falling. It knows something. You're dying. Try to stay alive. For now, touch yourself. I'm serious. Touch yourself. Take your hand and place your hand someplace upon your body and listen to the community of madness that you are. You are such an interesting conversation. You belong here. Padraig Otuma is a poet and theologian from Ireland and the host of Poetry Unbound from On Being Studios. His newest collection of poetry, Feed the Beast, is available from Broken Sleep Books. Busy Being Black is an exploration and expression of queer liveliness. And my guests are those who have learned to live, love, and thrive at the intersection of their identities. Your support of the show means the world. Please leave a rating and a review and share these conversations far and wide. As we continue to work towards futures worthy of us all, my hope is that as many of you as possible understand Busy Being Black as a soft, tender, and intellectually rigorous place for you all to land. Thank you to my friend Lazarus Lynch for creating the ancestral and enlivening Busy Being Black theme music. I'm so busy.